Chris, two hosts, one show, one year to send off the right way into the abyss. Bruce Carlson, what was the best part of your personal 2020? Because 2020 was not like a happy year writ large. Uh, I, I think we'll all be no. glad to see it go. But surely there was some bright spot in your year. What was it? Uh, I mean, for I'm going to answer the way I think a lot of podcasters in the podcast universe are answering, and that's way more time to work on the podcast, way more time, uh, less commuting. Um, fortunately, I have a job that we're able to largely do remotely. In fact, it's one of these jobs where it's, it's you know, um, no reason to even do it in person, so it's, it's kind of interesting. But uh, a lot more time to work on the podcast and do episodes. Of course, listenership probably down about 35% or so as people aren't commuting as much and people are. But I notice people are starting to catch up with back episodes now. Uh, how about for you? Well, I, I do echo that sentiment that having remote stuff and remote work has made it a lot easier for me to synergize the production of Don't Worry About the Government. I, I also teach lessons over the internet, uh, music lessons. If you want to get a lesson through TaylorRobinsonMusic.com, you can. Um, <clears throat> and having all that stuff at kind of one portal, I, I can you know switch from doing a podcast to doing a music lesson to working this contract work that I do remotely. Um, and it is really nice. Like, I... I the future of work stuff, I am fully embracing. I also do not have kids. I'm not having to worry about the homeschooling thing. I'm saying, though, as a dude who works and who has been in offices, it is great to not have to lose an hour and a half to two hours every day in a commute that's unpaid, that costs me money. And I like not smelling Karen making fish in the microwave that we all have to use every day or some other weird bread item thing that smelled horrible. Uh, so, like, you know, there, there are lots of different things I'm not missing from that. And then, of course, like this year, I got little kitten Yuffie, and so she's now a member of my cat family, and so, so that's a that's a bright spot. Um, yeah, I think there's some... It is interesting. I've seen a couple, like, quasi-political things stem from all of this. One is that, just a more economic, you're seeing it's... it's worker bees like us like it, um, the remote work, some parts of it. And definitely the commute, you know, I had uh, going into the New York City probably a, a hour and a half each way. And how much um, did that cost you in tolls? Not too bad. I didn't drive. You don't drive into – some people do, but that would be foolish. Uh, obviously, a lot of people do because it's clogged up. I'd take a bus in, so it wasn't too bad. We got some pretty good mass transit um in the area, say, so, you know, bus pass like uh, 150, 200 a month or something like that, that's going to cover you. I never had to use subways. Uh, I could walk all over New York City. That's never, it's a great walking city. That's That was a good part of it. Um, haven't seen that city uh, since the, it's kind of like the Emerald City for me now. It's just a fantasy that I, I think about at the distance. Um, but um, yeah, so limiting costs, you know, more time. And then, but from the company point of view, from the from those corporations, they're loving it too because I know a lot of companies have closed down offices. The only one that doesn't love it is is office landlords and WeWorks and places like that that are that are gyms and stuff. But um, for companies, the ability to like cut down on offices and and you know I think it's a good thing in that um, we're removing some of the feudal 
system of employment. And and the first step is removing the housing component of that kind of quasi-feudal system where the employer controls your workspace. Well, now it's your home and you just do work for them. Hopefully that can extend a bit to other philosophies like, hey, maybe it's time for me to work for three different companies. But if I'm going to do that, government has to be there with some type of health insurance component because we got to remove the attachment from workers and the corporation to maybe a worker and three corporations. Now, I, I'm not naive. I know that's going on already, but I mean also, you know, getting getting away from healthcare being yeah, linking healthcare the to the employer uh, is one thing mm-hmm. that's distinctly American, and I think often what gets lost in the debate about. Medicare for all, single payer, all the different variations of all of that is that the current paradigm that we arrived at, this status quo of linking medical insurance and essentially the ability to have affordable medical insurance to employers, was not really a system that was voted upon or really arrived at through any sort of serious deliberation or even meaningful legislation. As recently as the 1990s, you had the Republican candidate for president, George Herbert Walker Bush at this point, talking about how he wanted to give employer or employees greater flexibility to find insurance in the private market because, like, that was still the conception is that like an individual will be able to buy insurance. Um, well, and I think if it comes to like if we if we go with high deduct, you know, the 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 yellow brick road is there in terms of uh, uh, getting uh, like the Republican side of politics because they'll go for hey, let's make this available to everyone. It's just a super high deduct thing that doesn't pay, and that's always been a challenge. Like why healthcare is so uh, difficult. Um, a couple of notes there. I did want to point out just on a historical note. I mean, there's a little. I never. I have never felt that there's logic to the American way of doing things, but there is a little politics and history behind it. Truman really tried to get that done, and one of the problems was that because of wage and price controls after World War II, in the end of the the 1940s, there was nothing else for companies to do but to give fringe benefits. And they kind of called them that at the time, fringe benefits, uh, to employees which were not as regulated. So they would offer health care insurance. Once they started doing it, then it became something that if you took it away from companies, um, that it would be, hey, wait a second, we invested a lot in this, and now you're going to have the government do this. Same thing happens with unions. Unions were not the biggest fighters in the beginning for um, national health care because they were negotiating contracts with big companies, particularly thinking of the auto unions, that offered health care for their members. And it was something they got them and didn't want to necessarily give that away and go to and have employers starting to say, well, you can just get that from the government, thank you. So, yeah, the American system is really a product of the world. It did not go the British way, which it could have. That was a fork in the road. Um, and... In the 50s, conservatives, I'm thinking Ronald Reagan and his, um, his uh, the people that he would read at the time. He was a, kind of a John Birchie type of guy at that point, right? Uh, Birchie sounds, you know, he's listening to some people like that. Doesn't sound like personally how he'd be, but um, 
one of the things they, their uh, Britain in the fifties was their Venezuela. Okay, that was the constantly referring to look at the terrible situation in Britain and how terrible it is there because it was a rich comp- country that you know you have to you know after the war became kind of a poor country in in terms of each individual person's life right right yeah yeah um, well unlike and, america and it always sort of was it's an easy punching bag right because like america easy punching like bag. didn't get bombed viciously by the germans during exactly. world war II. and it wasn't so great it, it, it always had inequality and in income so a lot of it was just painting a picture but britain was the example of if reagan was making speeches to g and ge employees to try to get them to not form a union that's one of the examples he'd bring up. We don't want things to become like Britain. And part of that was health care insurance. And so you never got it done. And then I feel, and again, it's going to sound like I'm um, blaming the Democrats and unions and things. And partially, I think it is just the history. But it's not really, I don't think it was intentional on the part of these people. They were actually trying to get health care done. But then you bring it to the Medicare. Ted Kennedy and, and Nixon. No, no, before that, uh, Lyndon Johnson, and really Medicare comes as a 1960 campaign pledge, and it's it's actually uh, part of Kennedy's campaign pledge. Now, Lyndon Johnson gets it done in 65, 60, uh, but um, because you took the most needy in terms of health care component of the American population and got them government-sponsored health care— that's, I believe, one of your biggest political reasons why it's not done, why we're still there's still a fight for it, um, because Medicare, that group that would have been the loudest voice pushing for, say, a national health care system, got it. They got the benefits. It, it starts at 65. Lyndon Johnson you know, took a scalpel out and gave the exact group that used the most health care. At the time, there was a real concern about hospitalization. And, and also hospitals were going bankrupt. People would bring a sack of potatoes. They didn't have any way to pay these bills. So, And he also found was, a way um, of making a, a program that could expand rather organically with, again, not having to face political pressure. So like in the year 1965, 65 as a retirement age, put you pretty darn close to the finish line. What was the average life expectancy at that point? 75, maybe? Yeah, true. And then, you know, exactly. It was a much lower um, life expectancy and um, things like nutrition and exercise and knowledge about diseases Medical and technology, medicines. yeah, yeah. It just wasn't there. And that was part of it, too. It was easier to get done because medical technology wasn't there. Had you done this in the 40s or if it had been a broader group that became insured in the 60s, it would have been done when costs were low. Now we're now people trying to get it done. It's a very expensive type of health care. You referenced uh, Kennedy and Nixon, and that is true, that they dueled a bit and jousted um, on health care and nearly got something done. And, you know, many people blame Kennedy really in two occasions for not getting health care done in in an odd way. And one is that in before the 72 election, Nixon, who always was a liberal on health care. Nixon is a governmental liberal uh, in every sense of the word. If you look at some of the policies that Nixon's administration pursued today, 
like the Nixon shock program, the wage controls, and the price controls. These are things that Bernie Sanders might think are a bit much. Nixon, like, I I get how he also has obviously deeply kind of social conservative, like, yeah, there was, was like, on the government side, dude. No, he is a he's a New Deal guy all the way. Yeah, I mean, there's a there's a a lot of complexities with uh, Nixon, but he always said uh, his brother had died of tuberculosis because partially the father was too um, too proud to take help. There was help available. There were county hospitals. It wasn't great, but um, and there wasn't much to do for tuberculosis patients. But Nixon always felt that had his brother gotten better care, um, that uh, he would have survived. Uh, and um that's a powerful and, that unlike uh the story you were telling me earlier about chester arthur and the one letter that changed his heart like cindy lou who that's <laughs> the type of story that i do legitimately believe is a, can be a formative moment for somebody yeah because it also shows up in his in his attitude towards things i mean you have him uh basically proposing a healthcare system now he is a Republican, and so part of what Nixon also gives us is the HMO. So in other words, he was going to say, look, I'm going to have an insurance program, which resembled Obamacare in a lot of ways, and then I'm also going to have the HMOs so that you employers can know that you're, we're going to be able to control these costs too. We're not just going to say we're going to pay for whatever, you know, what is health care. We're also going to give you this HMO so you can help determine what is health care and control those cost. So the the HMO survived. And because of some maneuvering, which does involve Ted Kennedy wanting to have the issue for the presidential election, it doesn't go through. It's the same with Carter. I mean, Carter's health care bill does involve a lot of cutting of hospital costs and cutting health care costs before it gets to the, the bennies. But he did. Ted Kennedy also has quarrels with Carter and tries to get him to do national health care insurance in a belated way without a lot of legislative support before the 1980 election, which they're not successful in getting. So there's a lot of tries um, before we get to, you know, really on the way to where we are now. And it's um, so. Let me ask you about this uh, right now. In the mm. politics component of this history and politics conversation, we have the progressives in the House, and definitely some voices inside of the progressive movement, really trying to cajole or cajole AOC, the squad. Uh, now, kind of flushed out with Jamal Bowman, Cory Bush, Ilhan Omar, Rashid Tlaib pressuring them to bring to the floor of the house a vote on medicare for all uh what what do you make of this do you see a path to victory for these progressives i think medicare for all long term is going to be something like cannabis um reform and cannabis legalization it's just gonna have to happen i do think there's a time where it's just gonna have to happen but but it it's long term because there's a lot of opposition to it and they didn't exactly win a house election here i think that's what i don't think it's forgotten i think people are talking about it very much but biden won a presidential election that was very much as we had discussed before the election of referendum on the incumbent it's exactly what it turns out to be when you're able to win the state of maine with with laser precision you know kind of winning these counties in maine and then Sarah Gideon, you know, is unable to win the same counties, including some normally 
blue counties, um, I think you just have the type of election where it wasn't necessarily like we all got to become Democrats. It was definitely a, an anti-Trump. I mean, in a greater fashion than it even looked uh, on election day, it is now clear that it was an absolute rejection of um, Donald Trump and getting Donald Trump down to a vote where he's only 1% more than Mike Dukakis uh, in terms of percentage and, and and a huge, you know, millions of vote lead for Biden. So I think it was on the presidential level that's settled and you're winning whenever a candidate's winning states that they don't normally win, you know, that's that's huge. It was huge in 2016 when Trump won Pennsylvania. And, and it was huge for, for Obama when he won Iowa. Like, yeah, huge, it was huge. Huge Iowa and uh, Indiana in his first election, North Carolina in his first. These are just huge. Um, it shows you that the American people were rejecting um, rejecting Trump, but not but not saying so. You know what's so you know, interesting in is opinion, that the 2008 yep. election, it, it felt more like with Obama, they were rejecting the Republican Party, George Bush, and the Republicans writ large after the Iraq War and the financial crisis. Whereas Trump... It feels as though, looking at the election results, there is a message from some voters of, well, I'm rejecting Donald Trump, but I'm still okay with this Republican Party. Yeah, I think a lot of that's what happened. There were a lot of cross-voting. There were people who just voted for Biden, didn't bother to vote for the rest of the ticket. Some people might have been brought out on an anti-Trump. There are some people brought out on a Trump vote. And, um, and some of the, and, and, you know, for, so even though I only put him at about a percentage higher than Mike Dukakis, cause I think there's too much made over his vote. You know, at first it seemed like, wow, he got a lot of votes, but after Biden exceeded 80 million, well, he didn't get a good percentage really, uh, for an incumbent president. It's a pretty, um, poor performance. So obviously people were rejecting him. I think a lot of that happened. So you might have had some people that come out for him, also voted for the Republican candidates. They weren't going to get persuaded. You, you're going to see very little pull there, let's put it that way. If they're voting for Trump. They ain't voting for um, Democratic candidates down ticket. If they're voting for Biden, Republicans had a chance. Definitely in Maine they did. So, um, you know, it's uh, definitely... Uh, in South know, Carolina, you know. I mean, Jamie Harrison and Gideon, uh, you, you've now name-checked them a couple of times. I, for the Democrats down ballot, their campaign strategies and stuff, I think these are two races that a deep forensic analysis needs to be made on. Like, what went wrong with Sarah Gideon? What went wrong with Amy McGrath is another good one. Um, and what went wrong with Jamie Harrison? Because they spent a lot of money in all those races. They were really high-profile races. Uh, spoiler, or, or spoiler, uh, full disclosure, I actually gave money to Sarah Gideon's campaign um, after the Kavanaugh hearings because I knew that she was going to be the likely candidate against Susan Collins, and I was not pleased with how the Kavanaugh hearings went. I think, uh, yeah, no, I think um, Maine is a tricky state, uh, and that's part of the reason the money didn't really help because, well, you'd hope um, the head start you know, would. Yeah, she got this. Um, we're hearing more about you know how she got this local TV uh, personality. I think his name's Tom Green or something. too, who's kind of in Maine, like a bit of a, a star, um, and uh, all he never did commercials before, and that turned it. You know, there was a she fellow still has who a became ton of money uh, on dem- hand too. Like she didn't spend the money that people yeah, were giving her. I don't think Maine the money the money really changes a lot there. It's a, it's not the same type of state as other places uh, where I mean 
there's open questions as to how much of all this money in its excess really helps. Oh, I think it, it helps you throw events. It helps you hire people when and you're do an outreach. And yeah. When you're an underdog, you need the money. Like that, that's clear. That's clear. Like in other words, don't have the money. You're you're going to be at a big deficit in terms of winning. What's not clear is how much the excess money starts helping when you're getting so much of it that um, are you really turning people anymore versus getting some local TV anchor. You know, there was a fellow who became, um, I think his name was Carson, who became um, governor of Oklahoma, and he was a Democrat, which is an extremely rare thing, um, early 2000s, late 90s. And uh, mostly it was because he got the, um, I think that's Sooners, I'll get killed, yeah, Sooners uh, coach um, to endorse him. And that's, that was enough in that state that they voted Democrat. In You know, some of these places have local quirks, particularly small. But what's very clear from the Gideon is that, um, you know, the Biden Biden's much stronger in Maine than, than her vote. Uh, South Carolina, I think that was hope over reality. And it was a guy that, um, although a very strong candidate, considering he was a Democrat in South Carolina, was obviously doing more on the national scene to pull uh, fundraising in and to pull support in from people not in South Carolina than actually, you know, he had a chance of, of winning. Maybe a future run, though, when he's not up against, you know, both well, these I, people. I think Harrison's Graham plans to said. just be like a DNC party chair type of guy. Um, I mean, I guess yeah. I guess what I we probably disagree a little bit on this, but uh, I think that like the money matters. But what's more important um, and the money always matters but it will not matter if you don't know how to use the money. So I, 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 would, I would put that same thing with Bernie Sanders as, as people who are supporters of his candidacy are doing a forensic analysis of what went oh so wrong for us this time around. The money was there. He had $160 million, um, perhaps the staff payroll, which was something around $70 million, was a bit high. Um, but I think the better question is how are you using the money? Um, and if you don't use the money the right way, just the mere presence of money does not guarantee a victory. Go ask Mike Bloomberg. Or Rudy Giuliani. I mean, a great, one of the great and early examples. And he's, before he became crazy, he's been interviewed or too crazy. I should say, you know, he spent some uh, millions of dollars in 2000 and, um, no, sorry, 2008, and and waited for Florida and, and all that money, you know, because what are you really doing? You're talking about commercials, and at what point is it excess? And at what point are your commercials good? Do you have a good but message? But see, that was bad is use really- of money. So, like, like I, I get that it was, you know, he was going to use the commercials in Florida as his, this is, it was a weird strategy at the time. Like, I remember this, and I, I remember thinking 15 years ago, this isn't going to work, and it didn't. Um he wasn't using the money in some of these earlier states and what he was choosing not to buy, which cost him is the momentum of winning the early races and the media coverage of those early races. And so as Trump taught us, like media coverage is a huge asset. It's a huge asset that I think gets undervalued by candidates. And if you can get free coverage, that's even better. Yeah. They don't really know how to do it. I, I still think here, here's the larger point. Um, I, I I still think here that um, Trump was beaten, but no one ever beat Trump. No one ever figured out what he was doing and actually beat him. It was just, um, 
you know, he was beaten in a traditional election sense. Yeah, Trump beat himself. Um, because he also, and he beat yeah. himself. I mean, he, he didn't, I don't think, um, cared to ever figure out that he was an incumbent president and needed to persuade more people to be convinced that his administration was good, which has been 230 years. Um, so uh, the basic play, that's basically what's at play. And he, uh, and he had the easiest outdoor on this, too, that, that in, in a lot of ways seemed really tailor-made for his style of politics, which is the stimulus and relief bills. You have a pandemic. You have a broad polling consensus nationally speaking uh and, and broad enough that like even the we're you know missing and quirks about polls and stuff that they're not right within two to three percent precision or whatever way outside of that huge support for robust governmental response on an acute crisis um he is of the party that was very embracing of a robust response to 9-11 and the threat of terrorism and he had all of the framework around terrorism and, and, and you know that that type of those type of buttons he could have pushed us if he wanted to and then the final months of the campaign here had he chosen to he could have really taken the reins on the stimulus check and if he had gotten a stimulus check passed and a stimulus deal done a really good deal that Pelosi couldn't turn away from in the final closing weeks of the election, he probably would have won re-election. I, I mean, the margin that he lost the electoral college by, um, and you mentioned earlier he lost the popular vote by Dukakis-like numbers, um, the electoral college erased that margin for him, though. Yeah, it's it's important to, it's important to say, too, just to follow the 1988, that, that Biden didn't get as much as H.W. Bush either, so by God, it looks like 51.3, H.W. Bush was 53, almost reversed that, 53.4. So uh, so there's some obviously some third-party write-ins and stuff a little bit there that you didn't have as much in 1988. Interesting fact, right, 1988, Ron Paul Sr. was the Libertarian candidate, only got a half million votes, maybe even a little less. So uh, you got a million more from the Libertarian this time. So you see that peaking up. Not really so important, but denying anyone from having these huge landslides which is a interesting side point and a lesson for what the was party. the percentage though um, for when ron ran in 88 oh i i'm not sure but that would that would uh i it's it's something, i still think it's uh, about like one point yeah 4. i was gonna say it's still about no 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 not one not, not even, even one okay okay so so that is that is meaningful yeah. increased representation for the libertarians over 30 meaningful as in like they doubled their numbers yeah, and it was a pretty for them. Um, not to get into libertarian history, but it's like for them it was um, somewhat significant because I think C-SPAN was starting to cover things sure. more, and so you actually and most people didn't know them, but you're um, you you had a little bit more um, knowledge. But um, yeah, I think that uh, you're right about the electoral college thing. Still, I would go back to if you're trying to, you know. Because Trump won in a kind of fluky way in 2016 with the right combination of votes in, a, in, in the right states, I think a huge mistake was an assumption that that was in the right. bag, that that was always going to happen. And actually, you're trying to do a very difficult thing. The easier way to go and make yourself president is to do stuff. Um, so the, the other one that won in an electoral college victory would be George W. Bush. It's a hard example because you had a national, you know, emergency that occurred. Oh, I guess so did Trump in a way. 
um, but it was a national emergency that universally garnered initial support for Bush. So that helped, and he was able to ride off it. But uh, he also was taking actions and doing. In this sense, though, COVID to... was an opportunity that was actually very similar to this. Uh, you know, yeah, mm-hmm. I, I, you could yeah. have done it. You could have made it a war. No, I, yeah. I, I, yeah, war on COVID. Um, I think you you would have had a lot if if he had done that. I think you would have seen a lot of Democrats, um, not unlike with Bush, go. We got to rally around the president. He's our guy right now. Uh, he is going to respond to the COVID virus, and and if. I mean, this is like fantasy booking Trump's presidency. This is just simply not who this man is. Um, but I could totally see George W. Bush wanting to be a uniter, not a divider during the time of COVID era. And, you know, we got to get that PPE out to people. And, you know, r- really being all into yeah. that. And uh, we, we got to get these stimulus checks out to people. I think, I think uh, you know, look, I think any, anybody, anybody hit with something like that. The, the scale of a and, and shape of a respiratory virus, almost anybody would be. Um, no, no, I, I'm actually making the point that anybody would be challenged oh, yeah. by it. Oh, oh be, okay. We would be disappointed because we wouldn't know how bad it could have been. We, w- we would be disappointed by almost any president's response to it because it's a thing that hits you. It's not easy to control a, the virus like that. Um, and even the even if it was controlled, even if it stayed in Washington We have a State weird federal system. I mean, like, you know, if, if we had mm-hmm. seen hypothetical President Bush dealing with this, he would have still faced the challenges of, of managing all these different governors, some of whom would play ball. You'd have others um, in red states who want to be like, we're not going to cancel our freedoms. We're not going to do this. Sorry, Mr. President. Uh, you know, like look at what Brian Kemp is doing right now. This COVID numbers are spiking. He just went to the white house Christmas party. So he has very recently, you know, bent the knee obsequiously to Donald Trump after being harangued. Oh, he had to get back. He had to get back. Yeah. Um, but, but then like, you know, then the numbers are spiking. He's not gonna, he's not gonna shutter up his state. Um, maybe if Trump told him to, he might, um, but you, I think it's very possible to envision a scenario where, like, Bush still faces challenges that the federalist federalism presents. I mean, he faced that to a certain extent with Katrina too. Um, so, so some of these things are just things that the American system are not is not well equipped for. But yeah, no, I think it, Trump just mismanaged this. Like he did, he played himself. It's not, it's nothing. Well, that like Biden Katrina. Did. Katrina would be my example of where the hypothetical that would be a good good ammunition for the hypothetical that any president would have uh, the scope wouldn't have mattered as much it it's so bad now but even if it was confined to say Washington state or New York and New York City and there was just a bad um situation in those places um the Katrina example shows you a president can be responsible even for one story that's on the news happening in one place. It's it's almost yeah. Oh, I remember I mean, the BP was, oil spill during tremendous. Obama's administration. So, yeah, yeah, yep. similar yep, situation. Yep, definitely, especially when nothing else good is going on, and you know when coming off that uh, that victory in two thousand four for Bush, uh, Katrina just sealed it, and and his um, uh, misguided attempt to to really try to semi privatize Social Security. Uh, use private accounts um, was was just ill-advised. And uh, even some of the supporters, some of the evangelicals who felt that they had reelected him um, were disappointed because their members weren't for gutting Social Security. So it was, um, you know, so it's, an, it's interesting. And um, 
Oh, by the way, a little quick factoid check. Yes, it's 0.47 Ron Paul in the 1988 election. Interestingly enough, though, it was the largest third-party vote. So 1988 kind of cements that. Um, and even more um, than any other parties. Um, sorry, there's the weird um, Lenora Fulani. I, I forget the whole, that's probably a LaRoche-type thing, uh, about 217,000. And then all others are getting 249,000. Lyndon LaRouche so. has had one heck of a career. He has managed to just hang around as a, as a bugaboo of American politics for a very long time. Yeah, I mean, it's... Um, uh, no, I, I am wrong, actually. The Fulani's more of like a, li- a liberal labor working okay. families type party. But, um, you know, that's what you get in 1988. It's just a lesson for the parties here that even in a strong election where there was a compilation of vote against Bush and I'm sorry, a vote against Trump and vote for Biden, the libertarians are getting a vote there. So like, like parties got to think about their side. It's It's easier for Republicans to go there. They have that kind of a little bit of that mentality almost has to be shown like, hey, they're not really libertarian. They have the image already within their party. A Democrats. I know to, to your point, that. dude, I think the Democrats best electoral college strategy right now or one of them, not their best. Uh, let me walk it back a little bit. A very strong under extremely underexplored play by the Democrats. Um, but looking at this electoral college map, I would strongly advise is illustrating how the Republicans are not libertarians. If not on a national level, at bare minimum, in the 37 electoral college vote states where that made a big difference. Um, Because there are 37 electoral college votes. I want to say it's Georgia, Wisconsin, Pennsylvania, I think got removed from that. But but there, there are two or three states where the libertarian margin is the difference between the Republican and the Democrat winning and would put you, if you're the Republicans, um, very, very close to the presidency. I think one scenario I saw was 269-269. And why that's important is that if we really just were talking about the Libertarian Party itself as that organization, you know, it might be like, look, you're not going to get them. You know, I, I thought that a lot about 2000. I mean, okay, maybe Pat Buchanan got some votes in Palm Beach that he shouldn't have. But other than that, but that was like you know, butterfly of, ballots. Like that wasn't even. Yeah, yeah, that yeah. wasn't like Pat Buchanan yeah, I mean, worked it, some sorcerer like spell. And, uh, you know, <laughs> the, the, the Nader vote. I mean, you know, some of that wouldn't have shown up though, and that's the thing that people don't always understand about there. There's a reason these people are voting third party in 2016. It's obvious you see in the results of 2020 that it was significantly a statement that they did not like the two candidates. Because that was a huge third-party, right-in, green, libertarian, all of that. Um, never would have been as much of that. And and that and that's really where I think Biden pulled from, a lot of that. But he did it in a kind of, uh, because it was an anti-Trump vote. And yeah, I think that it's not just the party as an organization libertarian, which a lot of people don't like, you know, who are libertarians, right? It's that, but it's the overall philosophy of it. And how much do you have to offer? Are you navigating those policy realms? And, you know, cannabis comes out as a big issue, I think. But that's not the but only But Democrats one. wouldn't want to highlight uh, that one because that actually hurt them. You'd want to, like, highlight on a lot of, like, social... Just You'd want to illustrate on any... 
We're not really trying to bother you every day. Man. Republicans keep raising your taxes. I mean, like if you're trying to make the Republican critique, like they're not, you know, pro liberty because they raise your taxes and do this. Yeah. They have things that they want to military they, spending. They to oh, spend. they, they won't yeah. stop spending military on the military. Yeah, one. yeah. And and Trump, one thing that he's done, I think rhetorically, I never, I never quite trusted it. Um, you know, you want to say. If you're looking for something good here, you know, you got four years without a significant war. Well, I don't know. Half of that to me is we're already so overextended as a country with the military that there wasn't options. I don't know what he does with a fresh army, you know, with a with a situation where we had not um, gone into Iraq and Afghanistan and had the military out already. And you got Trump with an army. So I don't I don't necessarily trust the whole um thing that I'm about to say, but I think that at least rhetorically for a Republican bringing up like, hey, these got to get out of these wars, attacking Bush's being, you know, one of the uh, go-to critics, I think, for the future on criticizing the Iraq war in America, because that never got resolved. In Britain, it's established. Iraq was a mistake. In America... It's still this kind of netherland of, yeah, a lot of people think you and I had a conversation, um, I think, like last year. It it wasn't it wasn't our most recent one, but I talked about like unspoken truths. And that was one during Trump's rise in 2015 that he was able to make massive political hay on because in the Republican Party, to your point, it is still not. It, 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 I don't even think it's allowed to be said to this day. It's, but it certainly wasn't in 2015. It was not allowed to say that the Iraq War was a mistake, even though that was the broad consensus opinion. I think it was even a majority opinion inside of the Republican Party at that point. It's so mixed with the conduct of the war and the decision to go to war being the two different things. So that got mixed up so much. You may have um, where Republicans or those leaning Republican are able to criticize that war. It was, oh, it wasn't conducted well and um, it, it should have been done better. Oh, he finally got it under control with the surge and, and all these kind of statements that are just a jumble. And, um, Obama, as his nature was, I believe, sort of embraced everything once he became president and took it on as his and own. And he also like, ran yeah, on manage the Iraq was a mistake, which creates some recoil effect inside the Republican Party because to even sort of embrace yeah. Iraq was a mistake moves you to sort of conceding to Obama. Fortunately, when you're Donald Trump and you've been leading a birther conspiracy against Barack Obama, no one's going to accuse you of being in the tank for Barack Obama when you say Iraq was a mistake. Yeah, I think you, well, you here's what didn't happen that should have happened, and you can pinpoint it right there where you're talking about, is that in 2006, Democrats took Congress largely an anti-Iraq vote. Again, um, I remember having arguments at the time, again, a mixture of anti-Iraq because of conduct and anti-Iraq because of decision. But what should have happened there is that was the time for uh, Democrats to control of Congress to launch investigations, to establish a record, and then ha- um, have it be more grounded on facts so it wasn't just a presidential candidate running on the issue and making it so, like, you're exactly right. So now if Republicans say, like, we're wrong to be in Iraq, that's you're also boosting your opponent, your 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 party's opponent candidate there, and they don't want to do that. Um, so, but Trump's a go-to where now in the future, if you say like, "Look, Bush going into Iraq was a mistake," and you know who said it, 
your guy, you know, Donald Trump, that kind of thing. So um, I think that's useful. However, I, again, I go back to, as with a lot of things with Trump, because of his nature, I'm not sure I trust it. Um, I want to believe that there was something there. He did seem to be a little adverse to getting into a big conflict. Um, is that just like fear again, of confrontation? Because like, you, you countervail that with like the fire and fury and then also killing the general in Iran earlier this year. Yeah, there was that. So he definitely, um, you know, if you, he definitely had, to, it goes to his nature. Like, if you're going to hit me, I'm going to hit you back. And that's what he, I believe, bleeded into the military course with Iran. Um, but uh, there was also an incident where, in retaliation for that, uh, missiles were hitting the camp in Iraq. And I noticed a distinct uh, lack of wanting to keep going toe-to-toe on that one. And look, with good reason, uh, and I'm thankful for it because we don't need another war. You know, I mean, I don't, you know, um, again, I just, I still don't see this as, I'm not sure that I trust it as a guiding philosophy, but maybe um, more of, um uh, there, there, but there is some politics behind it that within the Republican Party, it's how they bash rhinos. Okay, that's just a good way. How they bash rhinos and Hillary Clinton type Democrats, and I've seen him do it. I've seen uh, the Sun do it. Some other Trump associated people do it. Like, oh, you're just going to keep starting wars. It's their link where they want to have a link to the very uber. Left, yeah, yeah, that's um, that Tucker Carlson, Glenn Greenwald weird mm-hmm. relationship that has formed over the last year or two. Yeah, you, you're going to lose that if you, you know, you'll lose that in a second if you go into a big war situation because they feel that um, it's part of, okay, here's a great, another way to look at it. It's it's too pro-deep state because, you know, and this is a great one for history as a lesson. I mean, the minute you establish a war, you're establishing a bigger deep state if you want to call a thing like that um military industrial yeah, you're, you're, complex you're definitely giving fuel word. to the military <laughs> industrial complex so no. look it's going to establish all sorts of people and in institutional strength you're going to have a big general that comes out of that war it's going to be a lot of people that aren't your guy the politician that's going, going to emerge from a conflict like that so there's a, a lot of things that are going to be out of your control so there seemed to be some uh, and i guess that's a legacy but you know really it was only four years and there were some puzzling things that were done on the world stage. And I also, um, look, Washington, what was George Washington's big advice? Get out of entangling alliances. We haven't followed that through American history, but it remains good advice generally. You know, we should be interested in... in I'm looking at that Turkey relationship. Yeah, you know, and, 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 and Russia as well. And you're one. And so one of the other reasons I don't trust it is what if um, it was in Putin's interest to get into a big war somewhere and it was going, you know, it would be the easier thing would be to convince Donald Trump it would be in his interest to. I'm not, you know, I'm not going as far as to saying he's got the little marionette or anything like that, but he obviously has some influence. And Trump's shown a proclivity to to want to, you know, make that country you happy. You can use in, the in, phrase, in oh, we just so. need to mind our own business, and it can have any different levels of moral weight to it right like you know sometimes i you know you say mind your own business and it just sounds like a value positive virtuous statement like it's good to respect the privacy of others other times 
mind your own business, um, and this is where it kind of analogizes to isolationism, mind your own business is like, hey, pay no attention to that guy who's beating up that other guy in the alley. It's not your situation. Don't worry about that. So, like, mind your own business can be used as a rhetorical framework to encourage the would-be isolationist, pro-peace person, hey, don't worry so much about what's going on in the Xinjiang region of China right now, or pay no attention to the betrayal of the Kurds and the fact that the Syrians are trying to wipe out the Kurdish population. We just need to mind our own business. Um, And that can be, that's an argument that someone who's like a reluctant ally can make um, where they don't seem to necessarily be embracing the moral situation that's playing out. Uh, but, you know, they're like, they're, they're minding their own business uh, while the trolley car. Well, we, yeah, there's forward. been a, yeah, I mean, uh, Kennedy, uh, I was recently doing a cast where we had a quote from Kennedy that he was talking to students and saying how tough it was. Because even in 1961 or two, you still had this strong isolationist feeling in America that we were running against. But the counter to that has been, you know, the the Trumans, the Kennedys, the Churchill, the, um, you know, all of the internationalists, the Wendell Wilkies, the, uh, the, the Vandenbergs, and then finally your, um, you know, Reagan and, 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 the, this, uh, the isolation has just went out the window, but, and I, and I don't even think Trump ever that that wasn't a policy change he ever made, but within the sphere of America being the superpower it is, you know, he was a little bit a little bit on that side of things, and who knows what a second term would have done. I guess I'm just not uh, as somebody who generally thinks these wars are a bad idea unless it's really something critical. Um, you know, I always say if the Ruskies try to take New Jersey, you're going to see. Uh, Carlson will will turn his microphone into a rifle, but uh, but uh, you know outside of that, I'm looking to avoid wars generally. I think it's bad, and uh, he seemed to be there. Uh, there seems to be political alignment with that. It, that's a tempting thing to give him as hey, here's one thing you can say about him. I guess generally though, I think presidents are supposed to do that. We're not supposed to get into wars, so that's like an extraordinary. Yeah, you're, you're supposed to and balance of the it, challenges of like don't trust how you it. exert. A- and if you're doing things like not supporting NATO enough, you might have just been setting up a big one down the couple of years down the road where we're going to have to fight. You know, either either it's going to be the the really evil thing of we're going along with something because you know it's. Uh, uh, the new alliances, say, with Russia, Turkey, what have you, or it's just that we neglect things so long that we reach a situation where we absolutely have to fight, and then then, then it's a bad situation. Oh, I, I worry so, about isolationism leading to impotency, and I feel like I've seen this now play out in this last decade with Syria, where there was a real opportunity in the early part of the 2010s, when the Syria conflict first began, for an international coalition to come in and provide stability to the region and lead to the ousting of the Assad regime, who will never, ever, ever, ever leave that country by choice. They're going to have to be deposed. Um, that's why there was a revolution against them during the Arab Spring. Uh, they were trying to depose the Assad regime. Um, but... You know, isolationism and the isolationist streak war fatigue kicked in 
and now a bad situation has gotten worse over the last seven, eight years here. And it's also like, frankly, like you look at the situation on the ground in Syria. The Assad regime has really dug their heels into the point where, like, unless Russia, unless the entire world's turned their back on Syria, this Syria situation is going to go on indefinitely. And there's no clear, real opposition force. Um, I think similarly, uh, the issue with Trumpian isolationism is it's, again, being done at the expense of human rights. Uh, the Syria situation gets worse because of the betrayal of the Kurds. Um, and in the case of China, I don't necessarily worry about Trump getting us into like some weird Axis power arrangement that like Bush can't or that uh, Biden can't walk us out of, right? Like we're, I don't think we're going to get stuck in like a weird legacy Axis arrangement with Russia and China that Trump inks to the final days of his administration and then Biden's forced to play out. Like he'd just walk out of that. But what I worry about is the weakening of our international partnerships even further during the four years of the Trump administration makes the international community such that, like, who is going to stand up to China if China continues to do ethnic cleansings, as China continues to do ethnic cleansings? Yeah, these are difficult questions. They reach, um, we were the largest superpower, and we really almost had that stage to ourselves with the rivalry with the Soviet Union, but they had a lot of challenges, as we now know, in, in competing with us. And I don't think you get that situation to come back again. Now it's a coalition of nations for anything you want done like that. And it's probably involving trade at a time when, you know, China's powerful the, the, in terms of their trading relationships. And I, and I think what COVID-19 proved is that abstention isn't going to work. Boycotting China isn't going to work. It's, it's into our infrastructure now. Um, we, we um, you know, we, so much is made there, so much is done there. And it's not just us. There's so much more um, than 20 years ago. So many inroads, literally building Yeah, they have a thing called Africa. the Belt and Road Initiative that is designed mm-hmm. quite literally to give them inroads into all of these countries, in, like literally owning the roads and building the roads there. <laughs> yeah, I mean, so that's – and Africa's the continent of the future – um, has the youngest, will have the youngest population. We're going to be a bunch of old people, so will Europe. And uh, it's obviously some economic opportunities there. And and it's changed. Like the Africa we knew in the 90s, say, is not the same because of what China's done to build infrastructure there. You know, and, and some of it is going to be at their benefit. It's a power relationship. Um, so, I, it, yeah, it's, it's a real interesting question is do we pl- – are we even able to play that unilateral role anymore as a superpower? What it's ultimately going to require is us working with Europe, um, forging relationships with Australia and the South Pacific region that is creating like a little bit of an economic block. And, and like the U.S. is going to have to be the partner state that the Bush administration refused to let it be post 9-11 when like really a lot of the international community, I think, would have been very open to that. Yeah, no, uh, totally. I think so. So, yeah, I mean, Biden, Biden's going to get in there. Uh, I think that it's a a huge. Um, it's going to be an interesting. Presidency. I have to ask you this though. Oh, here's uh, what I'm interested in. I am interested in the Trumpian post presidency. Don's had one term. <laughs> He has been screwed royally. Yeah. I know this. His lawyers tell me so. Um, <laughs> and and there, there's literally a convention of the states 
uh, working right now to overturn it. I, I, it's all going to come to a head, Bruce, on January 6th. I see it. It's right off in the distance. Donnie's got this in the bag. But supposing he doesn't, I imagine his post-presidency is going to be hard to analogize to any modern president, like Obama and Bush, of course, sort of like studiously became ghosts here uh, during this century. Um, is there a president from years past who Trump we might be able to look at um, and get a sense of what his post-residency is going to be like? Or are we just heading into uncharted waters? I want to leave you that outdoor there, too. Well, a couple of, yeah, a couple of, well, it's always uncharted waters with him. It's interesting. So I first want to just address the premise a little bit, and then I then I will um, answer the question. Um, I like Andrew Cuomo's take on this, which I heard recently. I think he was on Axel Rudd and and uh, he's an interesting guy because he's dealt with Trump all his life. His his family, they did fundraisers oh, and, and for the Trump family. Trump gave money the to the Cuomos at one point. And then, yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, you know, so he's dealt with them, but he's he knows who he's dealing with, and he's always been eccentric and a character. And you know, the politics are a little new, but not not that new. And uh, his take is like, look, your people are making too much of it. That because uh, Axelrod, you know, was just like. Would, the premise of your question, he's like, he's going to move down the street and continue operations. And Cuomo's like, yeah, but he's not president. And all of those Republican politicians, I'm not going to, I'm not going to say there, there are going to be a few, your Tom Cotton, your Hawleys and all that are going to want to get Trump's vote at least, and that his tweeting is going to be very important. But a lot of it's going to fade. He's not in the, the White, the White House is the bully pulpit. And there's not a lot of a focus on Biden. There's a little but I've been amazed because it possibly because of Trump. But when he's in the White House, that's going to be the daily Biden, even though he's not as dynamic as Trump. You're going to have to find what this guy's saying every single day. You're going to have to find out who he's entertaining, who the state dinner is, who all these things he has. There's still a Billy pulpit in America, and that goes to him, and that takes up oxygen. So, so I'm kind of with Cuomo a little bit. That being said, I'm a realist. You're absolutely right. He's going to continue. So historical precedents, um, precedence is um, there's two. One's the obvious. You know, Grover Cleveland comes back and becomes president. He's the only person to have done that. So a non. And so he like stayed around, term. floating in. He was a Democrat, right? Yeah, yeah, he was a Democrat. I mean, it's a weird. Yeah, you know, yeah, yeah. He, but yeah, he's, he hung around, the staying in Democratic Party and, politics, though. Uh, he was uh, he was a very nonpartisan person, so it's hard to 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 give that an affirmative. But in in a way, he did. Like he was in the minds of everybody. One thing that really served him well is that he did win the popular vote in the eighteen eighty eight election, and also that he had, as a president, decided to campaign on what was a losing issue, which was tariff reform. But he used his bully pulpit, so that built a lot of support within the party. There were some that didn't like him, but the fact that he won the popular vote, he became something of a martyr. So he was talked about whether he had to do anything or not. Newspapers kept it up. One thing he was um, able to do was get people who hadn't supported him in 1888, like the Democrats in New York, the Tammany Hall machine, to turn around because they wanted a win. They didn't want you know to lose all the patronage to Republicans, and he could write his terms so uh, it was sort of a passive, much more passive than I think Trump's going to be. But th th those were also the times. Um, but he wins. 
And um, one of it's, the it's an interesting illustration of like how powerful the draw of having voted for someone is, right? Like, like it, even if you vote for the loser, just you know, you, you voted for the guy, like you know, you, you've got some sort of association with them. Yeah, he, he won the popular vote. Names are important in politics. He, that would be his third election that he'd run in. You know, your your um, Democrats didn't win a lot in the. The second half of the 19th century, it was the only and one. And framing-wise, you so, still had to uh, refer you know, to the guy like, as President Cleveland, so you still looked at this person as someone who occupied yes, a presidential stature, yes. and Donald Trump will be enjoying that as well. He will still be President Trump. And he was greatly respected. He was greatly respected in the way that he went out of office. It was not a big economic disaster in 1888. It was a more policy, intraparty splits and things like that. And so... Um, Harrison it doesn't have a great presidency, and so Cleveland comes back, and it was it was kind of like that. If you want an example of how um, it uh, it didn't work out for an ex president, that would be Herbert Hoover, who really felt that this guy with the Christian Science smile just kind of got in there and was the more popular guy in class, but didn't know anything and was about to get swallowed up by that big office. I mean, this is so true that he was writing him telegrams even when Franklin Roosevelt is president-elect telling him what to do. Roosevelt's like, I think we should just wait till March the 4th. Thank you. Uh, uh, Hoover thought he'd be back, which is crazy. And then Hoover criticized everything that Roosevelt did, by the way, including World War II policy, including that. So Hoover is an example of somebody who's a kind of hostile public figure, constantly criticizing the president. Um, you know, he did go to California, but he did seek the party's nomination um, in 36 in a weak way and then in 40 in a serious way. But Republicans weren't interested and that didn't work out so well for him. But there's an example of a guy who kind of kept the attacks up. Um, as ex-president. I'm thinking a little, nah, Eisenhower, no way. He didn't do that. Um, Truman, they kept pretty Eisenhower's quiet. health Eisenhower did too. do some things. His health was, um, in the early part of Kennedy, I think he was okay, but his health was bad in uh, during Nixon's presidency, latter half of Johnson's presidency. Um, yeah, he kept his criticism private. He did have criticism for Kennedy, but it was kept private. Uh, he did have certain things where he said, like, if you deal with China, I'll turn against you publicly. So Kennedy wasn't right that off the list. Um, no, that's why Nixon, you know, people forget that. Uh, only Nixon could go Nixon to China. Nixon was able to do the deal with China because of the relationship with Eisenhower. Yeah. yeah. Half of that's because of Ike. The, the Kennedy didn't want Ike coming out. He got, I, Kennedy, Kennedy could have gone to China. A lot of people thought it was stupid that they're dealing with this country Taiwan and claiming that it's China, it's the most ridiculous thing in the world. You got this power that's in charge of of China. So, so, but Kennedy shut his mouth because Ike didn't want it. So you do have influence there. I always want to be careful when I say like, oh, there was nary a word from Eisenhower. Well, there was, just the way he did it. Um, Nixon, as a former president, was immobilized because of the Watergate. Um, Ford and Carter, as former presidents, having lost election, didn't have a lot of credibility. But they played roles, bigger roles in the Clinton administration. Nixon actually, all three of them come back a bit to influence Clinton in a way. But yeah, yes. um, it was more benevolent <laughs> force. So, yeah, I mean, you don't have this example, but hey, Trump's a president, a norm breaker. No, it's going to be really Breaker, interesting. So I, I think I, I've been thinking about 
I've been thinking about this hypothetical for several years now, um, but like, given the specifics of how he's leaving, the auspices under which he's leaving, the f- I just, I think there's one other example. I know what you're saying, but I think there's one other example. I know it doesn't fit exactly. I people thought that Bill never Clinton, when he left in 2000. Um, would never would be so active that he there was even talk like general secretary of the UN like this guy was a ball of energy i don't think anyone predicted what happened and some of it is um uh the change the 911 um but i think a good portion of it and and some of it was his health and and things like that he wasn't as young as he appeared when he was president i mean go back to the pictures from 92 he looks like a boy um but I think it's 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 a lot of what's going to go on here more than people think is that first of all they they're going to have to work to get in the spotlight when they're not president anymore. Even Trump, a little, and also there's yeah. another president who's going to be able to make news. He really can't do a lot. He's announcing cabinet picks right now, and he and he has a nice blue background, and he you know, but. There's going to be things going on, and he's going to, and it, it's also going to be positive and negative for Biden that he's going to have mistakes and um, and positives as well. But um, the, the news focus. So is I think ex-president Trump's probably going to be a net positive for Biden. Um, where I think uh, because I, Biden is going to be almost Coolidge-like. I think I think there's going to be a lot of silent Joe hmm. uh, over the next several years here, mm-hmm. uh, which will make my job a little tricky. You know, I'm gonna have to I'm gonna have to read into stuff and read yeah. about stuff and about people <laughs> to try to glean implied actions because I don't think you're necessarily gonna get that laid on the table. I think the media likes Donald Trump. Um, we know this. We know how much free media he has benefited from through the years. I expect that to continue. Honestly, I, I mean, I I don't think it's gonna be. Um, what was it Axelrod who said he's going to set up a shop right down the street and he's going to run a shadow White House? I'm not worried about that. I'm not worried about that. I think he's more interested in yeah. beating yeah. Fox News, yeah. um, launching one American news network and or Newsmax and or some merger of them um, and getting Trump TV off of the ground. And I think that he is going to realize, if not immediately this year in 2021, at some point in 2022, that he has an unbelievable power as kingmaker inside of Republican politics. Um, that his presence still matters, that people are still scared to challenge him, and that he's got a base of support that Republican presidential hopefuls will realize that they cannot be on the wrong side of. So everyone will... Con- yeah, I, I, the Josh Halleys, the Tom Cottons, um, the Rand, mm-hmm, Rand mm-hmm. Paul. Definitely there. Rand Definitely Paul, there. too. Every one of them yep. who wants to yep. run for president in 2024 has to adhere to Trump's kayfabe um, for fear of being on the wrong side of a Trump war. But here's the thing, though, um, with that. I get it. But uh, so Carter had to endorse Mondale by like 82. Um uh, you don't have too many uh, one-termers to go with there. A Ford almost, uh, almost, you know, became the vice presidential nominee, but he he uh, had to bow out at a certain point. Um, he doesn't. 
that that is a good uh, way for how 2021 goes a little bit of 2022 eventually though the problem for trump will be to be the kingmaker someone else has to be king or or yeah or um, he has to decide to run if he, again if um so that's going to be that's going to be a if dance. he decides to run again it's got he's got baggage and positives he can draw a crowd there's no doubt about that he also comes with baggage and republicans will get choices that they didn't this is where i go back to the cuomo thing a little bit with him in the white house intimidating officials and like you know um uh, cuomo had some examples of things he needed for new york state where people would be like i, I just can't do it i can't do it I, I i can't take the tweet i can't do it um you know you're not president now that machinery's gone so it is only what you're saying it's a um um you know it's just a play for that for those supporters but he's not the president of the united states so i think it becomes and there's also expectations it's interesting here too i think this is what happened to clinton um you know when he was president it was like what the heck is this guy gonna do now we all kind of have a picture of what he's gonna do as ex-president i almost think he can only disappoint if he doesn't get that TV thing started, what happens if that fails? Uh, no, so like Boy, I mean, there's other big... ways this could play out. I, I think what I described there is Trump's plan. Um, Trump has not been someone who has been, um, let's say, on the vanguard of personal health, and someone who's really prioritized taking super great care of his body. Four years is a long time for a 73-year-old man, especially one who has had, by all accounts, a fairly severe bout with COVID-19. So where's Trump's health in four years? Is it at a point where he can run again? Um, These things matter. Uh, You brought up Eisenhower earlier. Eisenhower, he wasn't going to run for president again, but he had a stroke at the tail end of uh, his second term. Um, They kept quiet. So he definitely wasn't going to run again. (laughs) The first term, yeah, he he uh, he had a, a heart attack. Um, he had more than a he had a yeah he had a heart attack. Um, he couldn't. He was he was the first guy to be affected by the twenty uh, second. Um, Harry Truman could have, you know, was specifically exempted, but Eisenhower's limited. No, no, yeah, he wasn't. He wasn't, wasn't going to run anyways. But I'm I'm just saying illustratively, like you can have yeah yeah the the health thing's always hard to predict. Um, uh, COVID-19, I don't know. I hear he got that secret plasma treatment that no one gets where they can refine it to the best uh, though, If he's on the Keith Richards uh, formula, he might, be, he might be with us for another 50 years. <laughs> yeah, it's a hard one to predict. It's, hey, listen, I mean, I did it in 2008. I defended McCain. Um, I even got in the New York Times early on when they were their first coverage of podcast, uh, you know, for, for defending McCain about his age because I was saying, look, uh, and he would have lived for two terms if he wanted it, and, and then some. So I think that, um, um, you know, uh, predicting that stuff is difficult. But you're right. I mean, it's a factor. I, for him, I never think that's a I, – I think maybe the, the mental, like, you know, what happened with Reagan, too. Is yeah, if four years – that's what I'm saying. Four years is a long time for stuff to progress, and mm-hmm. things start to progress in your mid-70s. It's just like that's, you know, that's how humans are. Uh doesn't mean you can't serve out it's, two it's terms like definite, your point about McCain, but, it, you know, uh, McCain's health also did decline over the last several years here. Yeah, if the relationship, I, I, you know, I just like to contextualize historically these like Tom Cotton and Hawley things. Like there is a weird relationship that goes on with that, though, if past is any prologue here, is that eventually it has to turn. It's like they all start courting 
like Democrats in the early 80s before 84 were like, okay, where's Carter going to go? Is his VP going to run? Is that who Carter's Carter's going to have to back him because he picked him, you know? Um, but eventually you're going to have – some are going to have to turn and say, well, I'm actually the anti. I want to do different than Carter. That was Hart in the 84 election. You're going to probably get a Republican who starts coming out in 22. Yeah, no, it's going to be like – so you're going to see Romney. Like, no, we have to see clean Romney, break. I think, maybe try to you know, position another run here as the moderate. Um, I think he, he will be someone who chooses – if Biden could do it. Right. right. No, I, I, God, I, I got to add this, one last This guy, two. he will keep trying. Like, you know, I, I wrote him off after 2012 very, very publicly. I mean, I, I forgot to mention my, my – I'm the only one in the, in the country who's going to say this. But um, this 2020, Biden, when Biden takes that stand, not only does it like, hey, you got Trump. Um, not only is it like, yeah, you go, Joe, but it's actually Biden gets to stick it to Mike Dukakis. And I'm like, most people wouldn't even know what the heck I'm talking about. But Mike Dukakis is the guy that pushed that plagiarism story on Biden and, and cost him the, the 1980, even being in the 1988 race. So um, after all these years, what is it, 40 years later or so, um, uh, 32 years later. Dukakis probably did him a favor, too. If he had won the nomination and was a runner-up in 88, I, I don't think this is happening for Joe Biden right now. Well, oddly enough, and this goes to show you his picture, is that uh, they, there were some medical experts. He had a stroke. Biden actually had a stroke in 88, even as a young person. Um, overworked himself. Um, didn't take care of himself, whatever, genetics, you know. Um, so there were some that said he would have been dead if he continued his race. So the plagiarism story saved his life. Dukakis himself didn't leak it, but it was his guy. You know, yeah. it was um, yeah, yeah. Uh, the, 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 I forget the guy's name in Massachusetts. I, I mean, like that's that. Yeah, that's how that works. Like, you, oh, you, Biden you, didn't even return the phone call when he called to apologize. So I'm sure in the back of Biden's head, a little, it's like, there you go, Mike. I finally got it. <laughs> this stuff happens, but again, you know, I think that uh, Biden was an anti-Carter. Um, he considered an 84 run. It wouldn't have been like a hey. Oh, I, no, no. Good relationship there, actually. But I still think in politics, Biden would have run against the type of presidency Carter had, and so would have Hart. Uh, Mondale was the pro-Carter. You're going to see that same breakout. So uh, I think what, what you need to look for then in the next few years here is kind of keep an eye on Republican internal polling, particularly Trump's popularity inside of the party. Um, because that's going to be the contours of which the Republican primary race is going to be run. And last time, when Trump secured the nomination, um, he did it without really locking down absolute true love inside of the party. What he did was have a rabid, strong partisan base that made up 35 to 40 percent. And if the field is large, and I anticipate the field will be large again, um, I think that that means that whoever wants to win the nomination, whether it's Trump or anyone else, is going to need to get Trump's stamp of approval. Like he's, Absolutely. I, I think he really is going to be the gatekeeper for these primaries. Um, the only way he could screw up his gatekeeper position is if he chose to insert himself in the race and like flamed out. It's or something interesting. Like, yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, it's interesting. That's a great point. Um, I do actually think, though, just straight up, it, let's say I was a person whose only interest was I want to get Republicans back in the White House in 2024. Right now, yeah, you run him. You yeah, run him. yeah, you run him. 
You're wrong. Because you know what? He's going to win all those primaries if he enters. Uh, you can't right now, reorient anyway. your party's mindset to like like I get like you know four years ago someone asked me I was just sitting at lunch about like what should the Republicans do to break away from Trump this is after the election you know I was talking with liberal friends they thought you know this was going to happen I was like I don't know maybe run like a centrist Republican or a consensus person like anything else is going to be harder Right, right. You know, you're not going to be able to reorient the party's internal narrative and kayfabe, Mm. to use the wrestling term, around Mitt Romney because they've now invested so much energy into stuff like all the Russia investigation was a total hoax. Mike Flynn's a great man, and he was totally innocent. It's great that Paul Manafort was pardoned. Uh, This election was really rigged. Sidney Powell and Lyd Wood told me so. Like, once you start setting up that kayfabe um and this is you know kind of a genius of trump setting up his power base here um that kayfabe is so hard to turn away from um it would require mitt romney basically giving a like a fiery speech denouncing all of this stuff as absolute bullcrap and i don't see that coming out from mitt romney of all people Uh, i think even the phrase if he said bullcrap he'd apologize profusely after the phrase yeah i mean basically uh you know, so is so that's it. I mean, if you're really just, but but again, that assumes that four years will be the same as now, which is always a bad assumption. But but it does move fast. Uh, that it, it seemed forever uh, each each day of 2017. It did move pretty fast. Um, you really got two years to see if there's going to be right. this change here, right? And if uh, it, it, you look at the, do we, you know, we'll talk again in 2022. I mean, we'll talk before that, but uh, and then you'll we'll reset the where things are. And that's going to tell you. Um, that's going to tell you. And where Trump is is going to be part. Where Biden is, of course, is going to because because a, a low approval rating Biden is going to draw a great larger number of candidates. You'll actually need Biden to be extremely low to attract a good to have people actually say, "I want to get in this." Um, if he's not with an incumbent president, yeah. If he's dynamite, you know, you'll only see one or two. I I don't anticipate yeah. just given the nature of like partisanship in the country at this point. I don't see him like breaking up to sixty percent approval rating or anything like that. Um, but like if Biden was chugging along at fifty five to fifty six percent approval rating, um, which is high but not unattainable in my in my estimations, um. I, you're right. I, I think we maybe see three or four Republicans try to run. And then at that point, Trump probably really does consider running again. <laughs> yeah, I think he I think he does. And then if it, you know, assuming he wants to do it, which I think he would, um, I never believe just for the money, saying, dude, I, he, I, the money he, he, he yeah. now understands how much money there is to be made in the campaign industrial complex. And if you need any evidence of that, just look at the way they're pulling in money hand over fist for this stop the steal campaign. He gets the game being played here. Yeah, absolutely. This is not this is the the business now. The yeah. business is and he was always talking about running for president. I mean, maybe it wasn't so serious, but it was always uh something talked about. Uh, and and yeah. on the real estate side of things, if anything, the Trump name is actually probably it's yes, his assets are probably good, but new buildings named Trump are probably not going to be in demand. So he really is kind of He's still got legacy real estate items. He's not quote unquote out of the real estate game, but I don't think he's playing it like he won't be playing it anywhere near the same level of aggressive at this point going. It forward. was always a publicity business. It was a branding business 
which is still what he's in. Although those stakes a- were fantastic. Uh, and my, <laughs> my degree from Trump University uh, is a doctorate. Thank you very much, sir. Yeah, and it was a, a legal business, which I'm sure will still be in. Um, and, uh, you know, so, yeah, you, you know, again, I go back to that is the most logical thing. You just run them again like they did with Grover Cleveland. But a lot can happen. Um, the other dynamic to watch for is so these Hawleys and these Cottons, depending on how serious they are, the ones that really want to run for it are going to at some point have that meeting where it's going to be like, we know, all have to go against him. Well, it's going to be like, when are you actually making this decision, sir? Because and and it's in their interest. This is kind of an FDR move in 1940 to string those people along as long as he can and never give the answer to the point that FDR was like making it seem like he wasn't running at all until he was running and the, the party decided they wanted him. And that's like really the smart way of, to, to play it because these um, people who are going to be beating the bushes for you for the four years, keeping your name out there, uh are going to expect that you're going to turn over to them at some point. And that point may never happen with someone like him. He may want to keep his options open for the four years, um, which might make some of those loyal lieutenants a little, like, angry. We'll see. Yeah, no, it's, it's going to be really, really interesting. Um, I'm, I am anticipating uh, – we were talking on your show about the study of power. From a study of power standpoint, I am fascinated to see how Trump – wields his one-term president status and his post-presidency because he does seem like a guy who is in like Bill Clinton you could certainly say was interested in leveraging like the Clinton Foundation and making money off of it but like Donald Trump is sort of nakedly transparent about the idea that this is the business now I Um, have one other theory too on all of that I mean all of that makes sense we're all we're looking at it through the lens of, of Trump um so I'd encourage two things. One is to look a little more the lens of Biden. I know it's going to be a, a Coolidge-type presidency, but hey, during his during his time, Coolidge was the center of a lot, uh, even though he was silent Cal. Um, the um, the the other thing to look at is I don't believe that these new forces, like yes, everything centered around Trump in this kind of world of this anti-mainstream media narrative and those forces like um, going against the media, going against the deep state. that could be, It's centered around Trump. I would watch some jealousies within that group. That might be more important than the Tom Cottons um, and the actual candidates and the Romneys and everything else. It's going to be the jealousies within that group. The media war itself, like the Fox Does OAN, OAN now want to take it over and not have this guy Trump who let's face it, could be a little unpredictable at times, not always a a good ally for you. They want to have him on the network. They want to have him as a guest. That's not what I'm talking about. He's going to be a ratings booster. He's going to be a rally, you know, booster and stuff like that. But I don't know that they're going to be comfortable with it all being him. I think OAN doesn't have a business strategy, though, if they're not news for people who like Donald. No, but I I bring them up specifically, though, because I I think – the would-be Newsmaxes and OANs of the world need a brand, and that brand seems fairly obviously to be news for people who like slash love Donald Trump. And that is an important subset of the Republican Party 
at this point. And if you were going to have a news war with the other conservative organization, you know, you'd have Fox trying to run a right of center news network during the day and then run, you know, Republican right wing commentary at night. Um, but then you can have on OAN and Newsmax basically th- these accusations that during the day, whenever Fox runs a generally balanced story, that they are they're against the president and that they're part of the liberal media and that they're part – the term legacy media might get Absolutely. used more. I think they're enjoying – they are enjoying that split with Fox as much as anybody. Um, but I do think there that they will enjoy a kind of a Trump as a Grover Cleveland waiting in the wings – um, somewhat quietly, not quietly. We know it won't be totally quietly. What I don't think they'll enjoy is, a, let's first of all, another network. Uh, I don't think they'll enjoy him always being the spokesperson. They're going to want some of that. I don't. I, the audience, they're going to want some of that audience. They're going to want to be the ones that pull out crowds, not just always having it at his determination, unless, unless he does actually start to develop a direct relationship with some of these entities and actually you know um i i would look for the other thing is i could see him being very very serviceable to a lot of would-be republican challengers in local primaries um you know depending on which county you're in and you're running for uh the, the the trumpies um might be real kingmakers there and if trump starts realizing that like he can essentially put together a trump caucus inside the Republican Party by looking at like some of the congressional maps, which will only be more favorable after this next round of redistricting. Um, you know, like there, there are a lot of opportunities for Trump and his family to maintain a real hold on the Republican Party. One uh, interesting thing is that the one person that won't benefit from the Trump uh, followers is Joe Biden, who wanted, I think, uh, there was, it was interesting to see that they were complaining to Twitter that Twitter is going to reset the POTUS count at zero now. <laughs> I don't think there are going to be too many people that uh, subscribe to that that wanted the updates from Joe Biden anyway. But uh, I still think that that's pretty ridiculous, to be honest. Um, yeah, I, I, they, they, right. No, the president should not have to rebuild from zero every time that there's a new president. It's the, it is... And Twitter should get this. It's the account of the White House and the office of the president. Um, the The office of the president is the office of the president, whether it's occupied by a woman, a man, Donald Trump, Joe Biden. I just think they're so afraid that they're going to yeah. have to silence so many of those yep. comments that are when Biden posts that it's going to be show more No, they're replies. just trying to save themselves a headache here. I, I, yeah. I'm just saying what ought to be, uh, not not what is. Um, all right, cool. I, I wanted to discuss the post-presidency stuff because I, I really do think we're moving into interesting historical and political waters on that. Like I said, I probably would have talked completely differently on it had I not listened to that. Cuomo has a, has a way of... Uh, you know, uh, he, he, you know, I kind of trust him a little on a lot of things. I don't want yeah. him to be president necessarily. No, I don't to. want him to be president. Um, but like, no, I, I definitely, I do not discredit any New York politician from either party's relationship with Donald Trump over the last 30 years, because he was so heavily involved in state and local politics in New York city. He's a knowable guy. He was on TV. Um, he was parodied by Joe Pesci on Sesame street. 
as Ronald Grump. Like, like I mean, like he's a very, very knowable guy. Is what I'm trying to Open, say. Opening credits of Studio 60 on the Sunset Strip, which is what Sorkin did after the West Wing. It didn't turn out, but it's 2005, and the opening, the opening scene. You know, the guy's complaining about, and children want to grow up to be like Donald Trump. You know, it's like he was always a figure in culture before he was. Um, Absolutely. And they're always talking about him for president. It was some kind of crazy talk. And in I would say in 88 that that would have been in the Democratic Party, not the Republican one. It wasn't going to be he wasn't going to beat Bush in the primaries. It was going to be, hey, talking about Donald Donald Trump because the Democrats wanted a well-financed candidate. Yeah, the the Democrats (laughs) are very much in the new Democrat era at that point. Yeah, yeah, right. Yeah, right. I know. You didn't Uh, know. He he wasn't involved in politics in this. People say it was the same. That's, That's not true. He was that it was a kind of populist that could have very well been Democrat, um, you know, TV person, um, Northeast that, uh, you know, existed at that time. It does, he does come out. It's easy to equate his 80s positions like Central Park Jogger and things like that. Well, and to, then the um, nativist stuff like, you know, Japan's, you know, yeah. eating our lunch for yeah. breakfast. But that everything. was so, con- you would have heard that get, Dick Gephardt would have said those things. I mean, so it's like, it's, it's really, um, um, you know, it was, it was a change. He really made a change. One of the, you know, I mean, I, I think he went too far down the Republican party. I think he had a great opportunity to be more independent, but again, he, uh, you know, I shouldn't even say things like that because for me to even presume I know what he's thinking or wants to do, I don't. It's obvious he's – here's another Cuomo thing. It's like he's going to do what he's going to do. <laughs> it's as simple as that. And us trying to scheme out like we would with other politicians, like this would be the best thing. Hasn't really worked very well. No, you, you try to anticipate – him based on what he views his priorities as um but a lot of that can be subject to who's in his orbit at any given time so you know like at section 230 i don't think that's a thing that donald trump understands in the slightest uh but i definitely think that there are people around him who care intensely about section 230 and thus we you know have a debate about section 230 Bruce Carlson, thank you so much for coming on Don't Worry About the Government. I don't want to keep you too, too long nope, here. Nope, uh, nope, it's very New Year's good. Eve. We're, we're getting into it. Um, so, ladies and gentlemen, it's the final Don't Worry About the Government for 2020. Let's get this one in the rearview mirror. Five more on the March to 200. Bruce, you coming back for <laughs> the March to 200? You coming back for episode 200, Bruce? <laughs> I was going to say, I'll say Audlon Sang, but don't forget me, Chris. Yeah, yeah. How, about, how about episode 500? Maybe, maybe, maybe I'll have you back. Prediction. My audience keeps declining, and don't worry about the governor. government keeps growing because you got the non-commuters, apparently. <laughs> and, I, uh, I, I am so. desperate, just like... Just like uh, you know, you'll be you'll be my OAN. I'll be desperate to come on to try to build my weak audience. I'm, I'm gonna screed against you over here. Talk about how Carlson's <laughs> legacy podcast. <laughs> you need to listen to the slightly slightly younger podcast. <laughs> no doubt, no yeah, doubt. Yeah, yeah, no. The the hypocrisy. I'm happy being ranked. the. Hey, you know, I'll just get into guitar terms. I'm happy being the the Steve Vai versus the Eddie Van Halen man. Mm-hmm. That's all right. That's all right. I'm fine with that. Uh, I, I will. I will wear that. No, you. You are. You are the polished chops machine, and I'm just. Uh, I've got some uh, shreddy licks about me. All right, Bruce. 
Um, where can people find My History Can Beat Up Your Politics? www.myhistorycanbeatupyourpolitics.com or wherever podcasts are sold. Follow me at DWATG. By the time you are hearing this, at Chris Ovenbrito will be a distant memory of 2020. Gone into the ethers. But you can keep following me and the show over at DWATG. Support the show over at patreon.com slash DWATG. Almost all of the shows are videotaped, and you get the video version of them, like this one isn't. Um, and there, the video for 494 will be up there. Um, if you're interested, um, there is 20 minutes before I actually get into 494, so if you've already heard it, um, you still watch this. Or I just go over all the guitars and everything around the house here in case you wanted to hear the stories about the guitars. So we go over that for about 20 minutes. I'm always trying to come up with some new extras and stuff for everyone here uh, for supporting the show. I really do appreciate that. Uh, yeah, patreon.com slash DWATG. Bucket show is all we ask. PayPal.me slash DWATG if you want to do like a pay DWATG thing. Or you can cash at me at hashtag Chris No. Those are your options. I want to thank you guys all so much for supporting the show. Uh, to my man, T, uh, I hope you are getting better from COVID-19. Last we spoke, you were hippity-hop on the recovery trail, and that brought me great pleasure. Hope you enjoyed the show. Hope all of you enjoyed the show. Thank you so much for supporting me in 2020, and I will see you all on, in 2021. Joe Biden, here we come. Bye-bye. 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 Bye-bye.